it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. Hi, I'm Bruce News Editor Matt Kirkegaard, and that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer. And this week, we have a very important conversation about beer and owning a brewery, as I catch up with Andrew Finneran and Chris Sidwa from Batch Brewing. It's an important conversation for me because there is an element of the craft beer movement and the small brewing industry's inherent underdog nature that naturally encourages in us a desire to support the industry and tell its story but often only by way of its successes and not its challenges. Allied to this, a metric that is often used to describe the health of the industry and create an aura of success is the number of breweries that exist and are opening, as if more breweries automatically means a healthier industry. While no one wants to talk it down, this unchecked positivity around what is already a very attractive industry continues to lure budding brewery owners because, well, Who wouldn't want to own a brewery when everything from an outsider's perspective looks rosy? This mindset ignores the challenges that I hear brewers and business owners talking about when the microphone is off, and there's not a positive story to be told. And for a host of reasons, business owners don't want to talk about the challenges that they face daily, plans that haven't quite come off, the things they didn't anticipate when they started, and how they've had to change and adapt the business as it has gone along. And one of the biggest challenges that I'm hearing increasingly is the sheer number of breweries opening with the volume of beer able to be produced seemingly growing much more quickly than the market for selling it is. And that's why I'm very grateful to Andrew and Chris for this conversation. They've been willing to engage in a conversation about the challenges they have faced and the things that they didn't know or anticipate in addition to their plans for the future. We've spoken to Chris and Andrew a couple of times on the podcast before. And you may want to have a listen back to those earlier podcasts, including the one around the time of their equity crowdfunding, to give this one a little context. It's a really valuable chat about the headwinds that the industry is facing and the challenges of running a business, even in a passion-based industry such as craft brewing. I won't say enjoy this conversation, but I hope you find it as interesting as I did. Andrew Finneran and Chris Sidwa, welcome to Beer as a Conversation. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate it. Thank you. No, I really appreciate you guys. And, uh, you know, as I said in the intro, this is, you know, a, a conversation that continues on from a couple of past conversations that we've had. And it's Batch is a, you know, is a business that I, you know, admire and respect very much. And you guys personally, you know, are guys that I follow very closely for a lot of reasons. And it's one of the reasons is because of your willingness to engage in some of the the, the difficult conversations that I think you know the, the industry needs to to talk about. Um, you know, in in an industry that's sometimes built on hype. So uh, you know, thank you for for agreeing to 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 have this chat. Love the opportunity. Thanks for having us. No problem. The last time we spoke officially was. Um, when you were launching the equity crowdfunding. And, you know, as I said in the intro to that, I'm not sure if you've gone back to listen to it since, you know, it, it, was, a, it was a conversation you guys were, you know, 
selling, for, for want of a better term, selling the dream of the business, you know, sort of in, in, engaging people to invest in the business, um, which has a role. And I, you know, my role as a journalist is to sort of ask questions about that. So, you know, we had what was a, when I went back to listen to it, a great conversation. But talk to me about the journey that you've been on, you know, since you, uh, you know, had that equity crowdfunding. The journey has been an interesting one. Um, and we raised we raised money, um, and we went straight to work on to hire um, a, a new head brewer um, and a new key account manager slash head of sales. And the day that they came on, I think we went into lockdown for three months. <laughs> so we started to kind of we just assumed that um, the lockdown wouldn't last as long, and I think it was our longest one um, in Sydney. So we kind of kept on working out. Um, what our plans were to to continue on. We, we said we were going to start new venues. We um, um, we intended on growing wholesale. The work we did on kind of some product development in kind of with Luigi, kind of looking at um, core range and kind of making some tweaks to recipes to get our, our beers more um, shelf stable and um, all that kind of stuff and a little bit more consistent um, was all ticking along. Our um, wholesale did have a have a a decent spike i think we um and there's a couple things to that with uh with our new um head of sales kind of looked like we were kind of going into post lockdown kind of post covid in a really positive way um so we were going into christmas last year like it was all looking up and it was great um and then omicron hit us and created a for lack of a better term, market destabilization, I guess. Like there's people, there's a lot of people that are not confident um, uh, in the market, spending money. There's nervousness. There's, you know, the war in Ukraine. There's um, a whole a whole bunch of stuff happening. And we weren't really looking at the wholesale side of the business because during that time we were trying to, we not trying, we were buying Bucket Boys and we started to tee that up pre-Christmas. Um, and so like we didn't, not we didn't take our eye off the ball of wholesale, but we, um, we we thought that a couple bad months would go away, and it didn't. Um, and while we were integrating this new business, um, we had realized our wholesale sales had really kind of fallen off. And we we under we only had two people um, in that department, um, and it's underrepresented for um, you know pretty much almost every other um, brewery has invested a lot more um, in their wholesale sales departments. Um, and so you'd think we would be saving money, but we just weren't hitting targets. So that was a bit of a watch out, um, for us at the same time we were integrating, um, and making changes in, um, the bucket boys business and, you know, seeing some positive sides to that, but also dealing with, um, you know, the market being, um, you know, in a, in a downturn. Um, so it, it, it's basically been, I think, I think this past year, sorry to kind of like our past year and a half now has really been one of the toughest years, um, we've ever had. Um, so, you know, we, we raised money, we went into lockdown, we acquired another business, we integrated that business all during extremely tough conditions. And now we've, you know, obviously I, we've gone into, you know, a new, new form um, with Local Drinks Collective, which we think is um, the way forward. Well, not we think, we, it is the way forward for us. Um, you know, it, it's like fighting in that, um, you know, you can either be a brew pub, kind of what we were talking about before, you can be a brew pub and you're, you're there and you're working 
Um, it's your business. If you want to go away, the whole business kind of shuts down for a bit, but it's, you know, your expectations are a, a little bit less on what um, the business can earn and what you can make. And then you've got bigger businesses that, um, I don't know what the threshold is of those bigger businesses, but you know, whatever, let's just $20 million a year revenue turnover or something like that where there's, a, or, or maybe it's, it's probably less than that, but you've got, um, you know, they're more robust, um, uh, um, function business functions that can, you know, that can go with when people are in and out. Um, and we're sitting in the middle <laughs> where we've been trying to grow this business to a point where we're able to not necessarily step away, but change our business role. So the business can, can exist if we are not in it for a little while, um, whether it be two weeks or a month. Um, and you know, it's just, uh, there's that middle, middle ground where a lot of breweries are right now. That's just, that's, um, that's extremely tough. Um, so, and yeah, we, we basically, even after craft money, we still found ourselves in that, in that position. And I imagine a lot of people are in that position and that's where we think local drinks is going to, you know, if we, if we get the right efficiencies and the right economies of scale, which it's, it's all playing in the, in the right direction at the moment. Um, then we can actually start to be able to see some of those, um, some of that growth and some of those efficiencies and, and the reliance on certain people in the business and stuff like that kind of goes away because we have a, a really robust team that all earns their keep, so to speak. Chris, is there anything before, is there anything that you want to add or follow up on? Yeah, absolutely. The, I mean, the summary Andrew just gave is, is spot on. I don't disagree with anything there. Uh, just delving into a couple of points, you know, the, the crowdfunding gave us the opportunity to make some some significant investments. I mean, we raised $1.5 million less a bit for fees, and we started spending it immediately. As Andrew said, that was, you know, all along the plan was very quickly to get uh, a head brewer to alleviate some of the uh, responsibilities that I was performing, uh, someone who would be on the ground, physically present every day to, you know, build the team, uh, make more robust processes, build better beers. Uh, and and he did that, and you know the beer quality improved. The beer was consistent. You know we were executing at our small batch venue you know, with great frequency, putting out some incredible mix packs and and other uh, interesting flavors. Constantly innovating, doing what we set out to do, while at the same time able to you know focus more of our main production facility onto some higher volume core beers. And we also invested in a, in a head salesperson, which we you know, done once before this time we went out to somebody with a little bit more experience, more relevant experience. He'd been a part of a business that had grown from the leaderage we were doing to leaderage we wanted to do. He had the connections and he and his team did put the beer on shelves. You know, in one of our final conversations before we decided that we had to, to end our relationship together, you know, he pointed out to me that, you know, they that they had achieved, you know, over-indexing versus some other breweries of our size uh, shelf space. So the beer was out there. Um, but the market, as Andrew said, just went to complete shit on us. So, you know, maybe that was our product offering. Maybe that was, you know, not keeping up with hype. Uh, maybe that was focusing too much on majors and, and ignoring some of the independents. I mean, there's a, there's a thousand things you can do with hindsight. Um, but ultimately, consumers didn't show up with their wallet, and and that meant that you know we didn't achieve what we set out to achieve, and, and the roller coaster you know had to come to an end. 
So we unfortunately did have to make some redundancies and, and regroup. And, you know, we're, we're back to a point where, you know, we are operating at a good level and, you know, our, the early signs of what we've achieved with the local drinks collective are indicating that, you know, it, it's moving in the right direction. And again, that could be, you know, just the market becoming more normal or, or certain things that we're doing right. You know, we'll have to regroup in six or 12 months and, and revisit it. I don't, I don't know what the answer is. There's so much in that to, to, to pick up on. But I guess the, the, the first thing they also say is that you know, I often, as an outside observer, I'll have observations about things that I've seen, you know, because we get so, we, we follow businesses so closely and you, you observe things and you get to look at what others do. So if I make an observation in the form of a question um, and you don't accept the observation, um, please absolutely push back because uh, I, I, I want to know where my uh, observation is wrong. But if we if we just have step back even before the uh, equity crowdfunding, and as I said, you guys have been around for nine years now, coming up ten years, and in in the, the letter from the founders and the equity crowdfunding, you talked about the original business plan, which included six fermenters, um, and your projections showed you growing into those tanks over the course of five years, and you're very much wrong by five months. You'd been embraced by your local community that your beers, uh, you know, you had to grow, um, doubling the amount of um, very, very quickly. So clearly the initial strategy of being, and I think even the name from when we first spoke, the the, the aim was to be, you know, a very significant member of the Sydney and you know, West community making the beers that you wanted to make, you know, batch by batch. Um, and and is, is that a fair summary of, you know, the, the, the opening plan? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we we didn't have relationships with, with major retailers. We were working with, you know, to the degree we had wholesale, it was to, you know, very local bars, uh, restaurants, bottle shops, um, pubs, and and yeah, the the product mix was was very varied, and you know, we were doing what we set out to do, which was, you know, explore the world of beer and you know, sort of upend what was the market at the time, which was heavily contract brewed. I mean, if you went out to the brew pack, you'd see 95% of the beers on shelves at, you know, the vintage sellers and, and BWSs at the time, um, you know, sitting there in their warehouse. But yeah, there were, there were not a lot of people doing, you know, varied product offerings, transparent, you know, we, at the time we did not believe in contract brewing because a lot of the contract brewing didn't feel authentic to us. So we set out to, you know, install our own tanks, make that capital investment, open the door every weekend and, and let people in and see exactly what we did. And, uh, and that's what we did for a long time. And that's, you know, that's what we continue to do now. And that's why we built small batch so that even as our volumes, you know, of core beers do grow and those tanks get you know, taken up by that, we have the ability to continue to welcome people in with, with different offerings. But as we've done that and lived that, you know, the market changes around us and, you know, the consumer does as well. So the, the whole industry has matured to the point where you you know, can't throw a rock in Marrickville and, and the inner west of Sydney without hitting another brewery. Which is is what I find interesting, you know, the, the whole question of growth, because I listened to that foundation story and how you were embraced did you ever reach a point in that stage where when you doubled the tanks and, you know, at year one, year two, where you were making beer, your community was coming in, 
um, you know, you, you're probably pushing capacity for, you know, what you could actually make versus demand. Was there ever a point at that stage that the business was inherently sustainable where you could have just have said, this is great. We're on a nice little um, treadmill here where if we just if we can just maintain this level and not go backwards, we can have a, a nice little business that pays us, you know, proportionately to the effort we're putting in. Uh, from memory, yes, I think we were there for a little while. Yeah, we definitely were. I mean, we we recovered our initial and we invested capital, our yep. personal capital, alongside some early investors. Yeah, uh, we invested. Um, we we as my, you know, my family and Andrew's family, our wives included, we invested a fair decent chunk of the initial startup capital, but we recovered some of that very early on by, you know, um, some securitized debt against our sin steel. Uh, and then, you know, what wasn't able to convert into debt, we recovered through profits, you know, very quickly. And, uh, and we were paying ourselves, you know, in very short order, a decent salary. Uh, we were, you know, hiring staff at the same point, alleviating some of the stress that, that was on you know, both of our shoulders so that we could, uh, run the business as well as brew the beer and sell the beer and move all the beer. But to to think that we could have stayed there and had a, a sustainable business uh, for the long term, I I think that would have been a bit of a pipe dream given all the new entrants into the industry. Uh, you know, there there is an element of, of grow just to keep up. Uh, I don't know if that's an illusion or, or a myth or if it's a fact, but if you rest on your laurels and stand still, you know, the new people coming in are definitely going to eat your lunch. You have to stay, you know, deliberately innovative and, you know, making strong connections with your market uh, so that, you know, you're not undercut and, and, you know, pushed out. Yeah. And I think, I think part of that, like, that's why, you know, I guess for us, we, you know, we're motivated um, people and we want to, we like to see growth and we, you know, I personally get bored if we're just <laughs> sitting there doing nothing. So, you know, we kind of started talking about, we we um, added all the tanks. We kind of done what we could do at Merrickville and, and we had our sales team. We had good sales. And so we said a lot of people at that time, a lot of people were saying, you know, that you, you naturally move on to a bigger brewery. But at, at the time for us, we kind of, we had kind of consciously decided that we don't need, we didn't need to have huge, uh, like build a massive brewery and um, um, have national distribution. We didn't, it was not something that was, you know, we wanted to try, if we could sell all our beer in Sydney at that time, that that was for us, that, that made us happy. So um, we, uh, you know, we, we looked at building small batch and kind of going down a smaller path so we could test beers out and kind of do really fast runs of, uh, and small runs of just new and innovative products. Um, and so that was the kind of start of, you know, that the next phase of kind of like, okay, what are, what are we going to do? And then, um, unfortunately for small batch. So as soon as we opened that, we had bushfires a couple months later and then went straight into COVID. I mean, that, that, that venue's never had a, um, solid run at, um, like what real success could look like for that venue. It's just been kind of, <laughs> it's, it keeps on getting hit with, um, all lockdowns and all that kind of stuff. But when when it fires, it fires, and it's awesome. And I, I guess that's the the, the, the challenge. The, the last you know two and a half years have been unrelenting. Um, and as an industry observer, 
you know, I try and pull out, well, what is the the COVID effect and, and what is the, the, the um, you know, the speed bumps um, that, that COVID has put in place and what is just the natural, what I call gravity, you know, gravity to growth, the, the, the business challenges that would have been there in a, anyway. Um, and, you know, speaking to a lot of breweries, some of them did really well during COVID because on one hand, there was government money, you know, wage subsidies coming in um, to protect jobs. But then also there we had this brief period where uh, packaged beer was just going through the roof for a lot of businesses. And, you know, again, as an observer, I've seen some businesses who seem to think that that was going to continue. And once venues opened again, that seems to have fallen off a little bit. So it's a really hard one from my perspective to, to look at what were the systemic uh, you know, structural challenges that craft breweries are facing and would have faced anyway, regardless of, um, you know, particularly in terms of growing. And you, you've already alluded to there are so many more breweries that you have to compete against, um, you know, even just in your backyard. Yeah. I think going back, like, I think I look at it, you kind of sit there and say, and even more so, the challenges are we had 640 mil bottles and then originally, which weren't as conducive to a broader distribution base because they're um, they're heavy and you know uh, they didn't cost any more to ship, but environmentally they they do take a toll on the environment because because they, they are heavier. They they do cost a little more to ship because you fit less volume in a box. Oh yeah, on yeah. a pallet, but um, yeah, yes, true. Um, so we switched to the four forty mil cans, and we were running both four uh, forties and bottles for a while, um, and then we realized that. Um, you know, eventually bottles are just going to die off. So we switched to the 440 mil cans. We really wanted to be different with that. But going, I, I, I forget, I think it was going into COVID. We started looking at the 375 mils because we we're just sitting there saying, well, it's just economies of scale. We really need to actually switch to 375s because again, as a shipping thing, 16 packs of 440 mils versus 24 packs um, of um, 375s. And it makes more sense. It's better shelf price all that other kind of stuff. So we were looking at that and you're trying to keep up with the market and the changes that are happening and what the market demands are. And then we move into um, COVID. And again, like the first year of COVID was, okay, well, let's just, that's fine. Let's put everything in, we'll back off the kegs and we'll put everything in a package. We're actually very agile, very nimble, like to be able to do stuff like this. We built the business to do that. So we were putting out limited releases. And I remember, um, you know, like going into the first round of lockdowns and we had uh, some beers. We put some playlists together and everybody's effectively for a year. Everybody's like looking for some fun stuff to do. And so if you had a new beer, that was your like your entertainment for the week. And then I don't think anyone listened to these playlists I put together. But like for me, I was like, yeah. oh, yeah, no, like, I remember them. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, listen to this, and um, and I'm I'm thinking of Mole Poblano, um, and I was like, like, oh man, this is great, like this, you know, people like we're giving, you know, giving somebody something to look forward to, and a lot as a lot of other breweries were, and I think going back into the second lockdown, there was still a bit of that. We did um, um, Collabathon, uh, which was supposed to be a big event at Small Batch, but it got canceled, so we packaged everything, and everyone bought those, and there's a lot of fun. Uh, that we had with that, as as with the advent calendars with Bucket Boys, and we put together the podcast with those. So that 
because people were still kind of like still a bit of a hangover from all that but like people were um you know everybody was into that and then and then as the market changed coming into this this current year even with omicron even like the confidence it's just all of a sudden all the new and fun limited releases that the brewery that breweries had been putting out and, and we had all kind of had success with just all of a sudden people i don't know if people got sick of them or what it was but that's really dropped off like a cliff um, to a point to a point where it looks like core range. People are kind of going back into core range, and my hypothesis on that is when when times are tough and you have less money to spend, you basically want to go back to something that you know you're not taking a chance on a beer that you might hate and spend twenty bucks in that can. Yeah. So I think a lot of people right now are sitting there saying, "Well, we we have we 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 they still like lemon releases. Don't get me wrong, but." I think it's like the way I'm looking at that now is kind of like, okay, well, the limited releases we put out like Chapeau or something like that are things that people know every year are going to be, um, they expect, they'll look forward to it. They know it's going to be good. It might be slightly different than what it was the year before because there are differences in raspberry crops and all that kind of stuff. But like, um, you know, they're more confident to spend that money. And then and then people are buying a lot of Core Range. Like right now, Core Range for us is probably doing the best it's ever done. And it's that's a good thing, mm. but it just makes us kind of have to look back at, okay, well, how many limited releases can you put out? And we had always really tried in this kind of, you know, that thing where we were trying to get the business up to a point where we had, um, you know, enough people in the mix and doing these certain roles. Our mm. goal was always to try and drive the core range to a certain extent. So that was people's in and then have select limited releases that we're putting marketing efforts behind and then have the small batch and kind of like venue only really fun stuff that you can only get on Kagan at the venue. Um, and we never really quite got there with the market conditions. So we're, we've always been trying to get there. And again, with this LDC scenario, that, that kind of puts us into a, um, a, a position where we, we actually will be able to achieve that, um, which has always been a goal. We've always wanted to do it. It's just yep. we've, we've been kind of, for some reason or another, uh, held back from actually achieving it. And that's where I have to ask again, you know, how much of that problem with consumers changing and, uh, you know, is the natural business cycle or particularly in a in an emerging industry you know where you're going through that early adoption sort of early maturity phase um that craft beer has gone through um and how much is it covid or did covid just amplify and expedite some of those changes that we're always going to see that um you know i sort of look at the move back towards a core range and you know not that i'm particularly prescient but you know i found myself three or four years ago because i get sent so much beer to try that i just wanted to have beers that were the same twice in a row and that if i found a beer that i liked knowing there was a comfort there was a security and there was a pleasure in being able to pick that beer up and having that experience again which for a long time craft beer was almost built on you know, every beer is a new journey. Yeah, I have I have a couple of theories. Um, you know, to Andrew's point before, I personally have, like you, Matt, have, have sort of gone back to the the beers that that are a little bit more reliable. Uh, you know, if someone is you know in New Jersey or in Sydney making you know their version of an authentic German lager, they just 
generally don't live up to what my memories are of an actual genuine German lager. So, you know, I love supporting local and I love all that local stands for. But every now and then you just I just crave the real thing. And, you know, whether it's my emotions and my psychology or the actual liquid in the can, I find that to be a better experience. And, you know, and, and people are changing things. The world is changing. Uh, personally, here in New Jersey, marijuana became legal. And I find personally and with the people I hang out with, if you're hanging out and you are imbibing, you don't want these wild and wacky beers. You just want something that is not going to challenge your palate. Uh, and the the general consumer, you know, of, of the younger generation isn't consuming alcohol at the level that you know our generation is. So, you know, we're dealing with a lot of factors of you know, mm. a market potentially aging out. Uh, other ways to spend your money on recreational activities and and taste just having experienced all these wacky wild things you know potentially coming back into just well-made you know good representations of, of something authentic yeah i think to and I'm, I'm sure i mean anyone who's spoken with me in conversations like these knows that i i tend to go off on this um bohemianism versus standardization kind of curve but I think that, um, you know, when craft, craft explodes, you know, uh, whatever, nine years ago kind of thing, where kind of, mm. it's kind of starting to move up the, the curve. And basically, um, you know, everybody's getting, there's, the economy's good, everyone has disposable income, they're trying all these new beers, the market gets saturated, then you reach the top of the curve and everyone's starting to look at, and that's bohemianism, right? Like everyone wants to go to local and stuff like that. But standardization always kind of comes back. And to Chris's point, like, I think we're kind of starting to look back at that. And I think you can see this curve in, the, in, in America. It's happened a few times already. Uh, I always use Dogfish as an example. They kind of came in a bit late in the late 90s on the craft beer wave uh, in America, but they held on. And then they people, yeah, during the correction, people switched back to international beers like um, I, I remember having this conversation with my brother in the late 90s, early 2000s. He's like, man, everyone's just drinking like, you know, Heineken. Like everyone's just moving back to that. So like everyone kind of had this move back to basically beers that they know, um, you know, are, are good quality, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then it'll – and breweries won't um, – um, like craft breweries will still be there. But it really is going to be, I think for the next few years, it could very well be that we're actually going to be looking at those core range products and the standardized products that people know. Um, and then their disposable income will go to some limited releases, but for the brands that they know produce the good limited releases. And that's the standardization I'm talking about. I think craft beer is always here to stay. But then, you know, we're going to go down into that. And then eventually in however many years, it might be five, another five years, I don't know. Um craft beer will start to go back off again and we'll have another wave of innovation and probably new breweries coming to the market and all that kind of stuff. So I think, um, I think we might actually be looking at, you know, a scenario where there will be some consolidation. Well, there's got to be some consolidation. But, but isn't that just fashion? Just, just to go back on that sort of pendulum of styles, isn't that fashion? You know, this year, wider bottom bootlegs are in. And uh, if, if, if a slightly wider, you know, bottom to your trousers is big 
you know, bigger. And, and then next thing, people wearing ridiculous bell bottoms. And then yeah. the movement then goes, you know, remember how cool stovepipes were? I'm going to sort of have, you know, and then suddenly you get these ultra skinny jeans. And at the end of the day, everyone's wearing pants, but the pants that they're wearing, you know, re- re- reflect the fashions. Hopefully with exactly. the, uh, you know, everyone's still wearing pants, but it'll just be what the industry looks like. I think that, um, you know, I always, you know, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, um, but, you know, I remember uh, in university I had, I don't know, I don't know if it was an economics class or something, but I was just like, you know, you're looking at market trends and all this other kind of stuff. And I was just like, in good times, people drink beer and in bad times, people drink more beer. So I think, you know, beer is always going to be around. Um, I think it will. And I think... I think it's going to take, there's a lot of innovation that is still to come in beer. I think, um, you know, it might, the face of it might change a little bit, but I think beer has a role to play, um, for, you know, centuries or, you know, millennia to come because it really is, in my opinion, beer is still a common denominator, um, for everyone. So, you know, it's still, it's still a, it's the drink that rich people, poor people, um, whatever, you know, at people from all different types of, you know, backgrounds in the world can come together and, um, and share, whether it be alcoholic or not alcoholic, but you know, you, you actually, you, you can share a beer together. Um, and it kind of brings everyone together. And I think there's something that is enduring in that. And I think that will always kind of be, will always be with us, even, even during trends of people, um, drinking less or, or that sort of thing. And you see that with pe- people are drinking less now, but non-alcoholic beer is on the rise. Um, so to me, that says people still want to have a beer. Um, they they might just not want to have any alcohol in it. So there's there's something that well, really... Well, I'm, I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced that uh, alcohol-free beer is on the rise uh, the, to, to the extent that everyone's talking about. It's easy to have 1,000% growth off of a zero yeah. base. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, and, and then there is so much hype, and there, it, it, I really want to see where the dust settles um, before... I'm curious about these non-alcoholic bars. That, that is just uh, an interesting one to me. I, 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 I very rarely see a second media release from them. You always see the first, okay. but so I, I, I don't know what that what, what that means. But just okay. on, on that question, the beer will always be there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I guess we're three white dudes talking about beer. That, you know that that is our that 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 is our space. But as um, you know, I in 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 my life, I don't recall conversations around inclusivity and gender, and you know, um, you know, all all of the topics that are now um, up for debate. And I, I I get the feeling that we're going through a period of social change as dramatic as I read about the '60s. I wasn't old enough to remember that, but it's one of those things that um, where we are seeing change. And I do wonder how relevant beer is. In, in you know in, in the new emerging world um, if, if it is just the province of, of white dudes fair enough yeah interestingly enough I live in South Orange New Jersey now I moved out of Sydney in, in June of 2019 um, still day-to-day involved in this business just working nights and, mm. and um, making it work but where I live in my town is you know fairly even split if you went to the the high school you'd see um, you know, equal representation of, of black kids and white kids with a healthy proportion of, of Asians and Hispanics. And it's very diverse. If you go one town to the east, you're in Newark, New Jersey, where you would find an almost entirely black population. 
uh, with with healthy communities of of Mexicans and and other immigrants from Central and South America. And if you go one town to my west, you are in a place that's almost ninety five percent white, with a few uh, you know folks from you know basically on um, corporate. Uh, secondments, so you know they're, they're upper, way upper class, you know, doing it well. So it's an, it's an interesting dynamic to look at, you know, what's to my east and what's to my west. And I I have seen a you know a, a flurry of of uh, you know black owned businesses, female owned, um, you know, you know, setting their shingle out there and, and getting a, a, a pretty good reception. So I think the market, if you just focus on you know what the consumer wants, you will you know, react to what you know, but if you take a different approach and, and, and do open your mind up to what, you know, what could be the growth there, there is opportunity. So as I said, you know, the, you know, the younger generation is not consuming alcohol to the, to the level that, you know, some of us older folks are, uh, but there are other, you know, pockets of the population that, that haven't experienced craft beer. And, you know, who's to say if it's you know done authentically and marketed well, it couldn't work very well there. And with these dramatic changes have taken place, both, you know, through COVID, but, but taking out the COVID, but you, you sort of look at the market dynamics that are changing rapidly and, you know, the the social conversations that are uh, taking place are impacting, you know, the consumer um, decisions. To, to some extent, they were things that were going to happen regardless, you know, and eight years ago, was Batch equipped, was the business that Batch started as equipped to handle those things? I would have thought as a small business, once you get to that scale, you're probably at a good size to handle rapidly changing um, environments much better than a much bigger business would. Or, or does growth give you, you know, a little bit of resilience? It's an interesting one. I mean, Andrew mentioned before our ability to pivot into cans very quickly. Uh, you know, we ha- we have our own equipment. We weren't relying on contract canners. So, mm. you know, when the market shifted to, to package, that was an easy adjustment for us. Not so much for a rock star packing team to, you know, have to deal with uh, running that machine all day. But as a business, we could just... Uh, I think there is an element of once you are dealing and heavily relying on the majors for your volume and your growth, uh, the majors don't move very fast, so it doesn't matter if you move fast or not. If you're moving faster than they are, you're not going to get the business anyway. So uh, it just depends on where your market is. If you're doing an exceptional job of direct-to-consumer and you pivot and they pivot with you, great. If you rely on traditional distribution channels, you kind of have to move in lockstep with them and you're hamstrung to what they will let you have and, and what what they can do with you yeah and the other thing is also you know we, we we could pivot quickly but i mentioned that earlier but we're pivoting off of like a hunch <laughs> most of the time whereas like you know bigger businesses um have market data market research like most of this is just like okay this is we this, historically this is what's happened okay maybe we should move on this or um you know we got some good feedback let's try and maximize um, a bigger, uh, a, a more volume or a bigger volume of a certain beer or something like that. And to Chris's point, not everyone's always pivoted with us on this, <laughs> you know, like we've done, we've done stuff where, oh man, this is, this is going to be great. I'm, I'm trying to think of what's an example. Well, Saison's are a great example. Um, and, and uh, say I pay Saison IPAs and, um, we, or we did something 
Um, and, you know, I, I remember being really excited about it, being, oh, this is going to be awesome. And it's just no one, just, it just, yeah. But, but that, 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 that Saison, brewers, brewers love Saisons. You know, brewers love Pilsners. But you can't sell them, and yeah. <laughs> and yet I don't know a single brewer. I, I, I've never taken a poll of any brewers who have said, "Gee, I love making hazies," and yet, you know, <laughs> and yet that's where the, the the market's at. But that's the risk when you're in, a, in an echo chamber um, with talking to, um, you know, some beer nerds that came in and really liked it, and the brewers like it, and you like it, and you're like, well, certainly, like, well, you know. We've put out some of these beers, other beers, whatever that everyone's everyone's loved. So this has got to work, you know. No, <laughs> not not always the case. <laughs> and, and you know, I I don't know if I'm right very often, but it's one of the things that gives me some you know measure of solace when I'm uh, <laughs> sort of saying something different to everybody else. I sort of think, well, when you agree with everybody, you're not right either. So you know, if yeah. I'm going to be wrong, I'd, I'd I'd much rather be wrong saying what I think. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even things like, you know, how quickly the market changed and how we went from, you know, I think every brewery that I saw in the, you know, when, when breweries were opening six, seven, eight years ago, they all opened with their planned core range. These are the beers we want to make. These are the beers we want to sell. And I remember going back, you know, 15, 16, 17 years when the first craft beer importers came in and you know they they were the ones who were picking up the phone complaining about consumers never wanting to buy the same beer twice so they would sign a contract with a brewery they would get it in and the first you know stone uh, you know batch of stone beers or the first batch of brewdog beers back in the day would and they would sell out but then they would get the second container in and they would just sit because nobody wanted the same beer twice and they were the first people to say you know we need a core range um and it's almost where we saw that become craft breweries as there were so many craft breweries so many breweries were trying to make a name for themselves as they launched or as they tried to bring attention back did that and that's where the market seemed to have pivoted you know swung to just one-off beers um Mm -hmm. and you know i i I still don't know how the economics of one-off beers work for anybody they don't really it's it's unless you're selling them for like an exorbitant price. Mm. They're they're expensive. They're expensive to do. They do if you're at that very pointy end of of the pyramid. So again, my analogy is that you know at the very top of the pyramid, you've got people who are heavily dedicated, but they are a small population. You get down to the bottom, they could take it or leave it, but there's a lot of them, and and then there's a spectrum in between. I mean, Topher at Wildflower does an exceptional job. He's mm. basically got his beers practically, I don't know what percentage, but there's a heavy percentage that are subscribed and yep. whatever he makes people buy. And they're always different and it's inherent in, in the product. But can he scale? I mean, I'm not trying to... Does he to, want to scale? And and, and, and that's... Or, or, of, course, of course. Yeah, going back to the first question I was asking, you know, is there a point at which you can do what you genuinely love it's sustainable for you as a person, but then also the business is sustainable. We have ebbed and flowed on the, the degree to which we need core and the degree to which we need creativity. Creativity keeps people interested, keeps yep. your, your marketing team energized, your brewers energized. Uh, you know, I've seen revolving doors at certain breweries that only make one or two or three products. You know, the brewers come in, they spend you know, six months, they learn to trade. 
and then they quit and move on because there's a million other opportunities for them to get a job. But so if you want to build a sustainable, reliable business with, with people who are going to grow with you, uh, you know, a lot of those brewers right now want, you know, to get their hands dirty and be creative and have that creative outlet. So I, I think where we've landed now is, is a healthy internal debate around, you know, which end of the pendulum we need to be on. And, you know, having that push and pull means that, you know, that we get a little bit of both and, you know, the pendulum will swing back and forth. I mean, my, my vision for the last number of years has been to make Australian beers with Australian raw materials in the most sustainable, you know, respectful way we possibly can. You know, we rely on the agriculture to tell us what is going to deliver. And then we as brewers adapt to that as opposed to, you know, shopping around the world and importing and, and burning fuels to get the raw materials to make an authentic version of something that is inherently not authentic because that's what, you know, the, the that beer belongs to Belgians, not to you in Sydney. I mean, I try to instill in our brewers an, an idea of using what's available and, and being creative and expressing yourself as opposed to, to, to making what the market expects of you. But at the same time, we also are heavily focused on core right now. And, and, and I have that debate myself. Do, do I go out and buy, you know, the thing made by the local brewer who's trying to be sustainable or do I go out and buy the Lagunitas little something because it's freaking great. And, you know, I have that debate myself and we have that debate within the company. And, and that's where hearing you talk about local ingredients for an Australian audience and, you know, that are relevant, the non-brewery owning romantic in me, um, that resonates, you know, with with my heart as a beer lover. But then I, the, the rationalist goes, well, do consumers care about that? And I can only apply that to my own, you know, my own little business that has so many parallels to brewing is that I wanted to do industry news, you know, my way and ask the questions that I wanted to ask, not the, you know, not write for the people who are paying for advertising. I wanted to write for the readers who want, who had similar questions. And, uh, you know, there are days that I wake up feeling I've done something that's really important and it just doesn't feel valued because, you know, in, in a way that people will actually pay for. You know, they, they might sort of uh, pay lip service to, but will they ever actually pay for something that they, uh, you know, on one level intellectually value, but when it comes to putting their hand in their pocket? Well, well, let me just state for the record, for all the millions of beer consumers listening to this podcast, I want you to hit our socials up and tell us what you want from us. Actually, that, that's, that, that's an interesting place to take the, the, the conversation because you did... You know, you did the equity crowdfunding eighteen months ago, and you know, apart from the the the, the money, uh, the, the 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 capital that you raised, that is important for any business to to do grow and scale. One of the hopes was that you build a community, um, you know, who feel that they have a, an a, an investment in the business and would feed back to you. You know, has that has that worked out? Have you had an army of batches to uh, to, to to you know champion the brand? We did an analysis of, of the postcodes of people who bought into our company and, you know, they are remarkably close to the brewery. It's very hyper-concentrated around you know, the Marrickville area. Um, our data that we capture for people walking through the door at the tasting room is not very good in terms of the uptake of uh, investors coming in to, you know, get the value out of their shares through discounts and, and you know, realizing a dividend that way. Where we do have good data is on the online sales, and no, our investor population 
there are a number of them who are very, very habitual buyers and mm. very involved in the, in the community, very loyal. Uh, and the vast majority don't even open our emails. I mean, Andrew can speak to the to the open rates and the participation rates, but they they would not make us proud. I guess is the way yeah. And I think I think I think when we did this, we thought we were going to have a lot more um, you know, your participation on on that front. Um, I, I've got no I have no uh, reason for why we haven't do people just invest in they're kind of like yep they're just happy to kind of say they own part of a brewery um or have we not engaged them properly um i'm not sure we, we could definitely you know take some blame for for not engaging them the way they want to be engaged with or what have you but when we do ask for input basically get radio silence so yeah. then you know it's like do we invest our time in making people money or do we invest our time in telling people what we're going to do mm. and then the pendulum usually swings to let's just get on with doing our business and people ask questions let's jump on it but mm. if they don't then we'll leave them and get on with what we said we do you know if we had had this super hyper engaged uh audience um you know we ran some like quick numbers off of that and it was just it would have been gr- like absolutely awesome like everyone buys a four pack you know, mm-hmm. a week or a case a month or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and that's, that's a fantastic result for, um, for the business, which means we can continue mm. to engage everyone. And it kind of takes you out of that, that, um, the day-to-day grind of like, you know, trying to sell wholesale, but it kind of, you know, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of aspects that we were like, okay, this is, this is going to be awesome. Like we're going to see, this super engaged audience and they're going to spend money with us um, and everyone's going to get their discounts and there's value for them and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But um, yeah, it just hasn't uh, panned out that way. And I imagine that's probably what a lot, a lot of other people are experiencing. I maybe, maybe, and I hope I'm wrong. Like hopefully other crowdfunders and I'm not saying anything bad about the people who have invested in us. Mm. Um, I think there's probably, you know, the, some of it's our fault as well, but you know, I imagine there are going to be some similar challenges other breweries have would have had in crowdfunding as well. Um, thinking that they they're going to have a more engaged audience than they potentially have ended up having. Who knows? And then, and then the flip side of that is if you have a hyper engaged audience, then you're putting on staff just to manage them. Yeah, which, which, which again was one of the things I was going to say is that it's I, I think it's one of the things that people don't consider when they crowdfund is that there is a cost to servicing those people who are coming on to deliver on the promises that are, you know, overtly or implicitly made um, during the equity crowdfunding. Yeah. And I think for us, you know, I think when it was just a batch and small batch, that was a little bit easier for us to manage. But then, you know, um, acquiring Bucket Boys and taking over... um, you know how they're doing things and how they communicate and all that stuff is added a level of complication with a team that was already stretched, um, especially from a marketing point of view. Um, so yeah, it adds you know it it adds complication, um, which is which is again where we're where are we at now with local drinks collective. We have a full you know we have a, a well a well staffed marketing team that can handle multiple brands and EDMs and um, social posts and paid advertising and all that kind of stuff, which is, um, which is, which is great. Um, well, we didn't have that before. It was me and one other guy doing it and, um, trying to keep up with, you know, making sure we're going to post something and that that thing's also available 
like online and you know did the guys put it on the shelves did you, you know there's just a whole there's a whole raft of things that come with it that can easily and one little thing can fall over and that's the whole thing's done <laughs> mm, yeah <laughs> yeah I mean, again I, I can't hold myself out as a you know cross section of the community but you know I've, I've bought into a lot of crowdfundings just for to to more to observe and understand so I can actually see you know the communications that come out and compare different businesses and you know overwhelmingly um, you know the the communication seems to be here's our latest beer um, and not a lot about the, the 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 business and how it's traveling and business updates and hey you know you are an owner of this business here here here's how it's going and uh, in, in the case of batch you know I don't know how reasonable it is that you know businesses need to run but you know hearing about the local drinks collective and I've got a I think one share in batch so a, a very small amount but you know quite often I heard of um, uh, things to do with the company as a journalist, not as a shareholder. Um, and, you know, I wonder what that, when you spread that out across the whole share ownership, um, whether people end up feeling that they're part of a business when they're not consulted on, um, or even, you know, superficially consulted on, you know, major direction changes or insights. Some of these things end up getting, um, and again, it's, you know, back to, are the resources that we have and trying to manage um, a lot of different stakeholders. You know, in the case of um, things like Local Drinks Collective or um, even Bucket Boys, like we um, we are trying to not to keep it like it's kind of you have this dilemma of whether you go and tell the shareholders and you've got 700 shareholders, but you're trying to keep it under wraps in the market. And unfortunately, one of which is a journalist. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Unfortunately, yeah. So unfortunately for us, that there there is very much a dilemma that, and and you in particular, Matt, like we we were aware of that. So we're kind of like we have to run this gauntlet of, um, not telling everybody, but telling everybody right at all at the same time when the media and then and then the media goes out because we kind of have to, you know, you don't want it to leak out into market and then mm. then then there's really no announcement. So for us, that's always been actually been a bit of a tough one to handle. Um, and has left some people, um, you know, such as yourself, a little bit um, put out from time to time. And we're not doing that intentionally. Um, like we're not doing it to try and keep people out of the loop. But sometimes we just said we, we need to hold off on this communication and wait. But in terms of business updates for us, yeah, I think for, for us, that's always just been a tough one because you're constantly like Chris and I are in the business day to day, making changes, trying to keep everything going, especially during one of the toughest years we've had and kind of sitting there saying, well, what do people actually want to know? And, and, and to Chris's point earlier, we've kind of gotten a lot of radio silence from people. Like we're kind of, you know, like we'll get one person kind of come coming back and kind of saying, Oh, I'd like to see this, this, and this. We're like, okay, that's fine. Like, we'll, we're happy to talk to you about it or send it to you, but we don't, we're not getting the sense that everybody wants to know, you know, bad statement updates or, you know, quarterly updates or, or anything like that. And for us, it's been really tough because, you know, you're, you're dealing with a huge amount of change from, um, um, from lockdown to then Omicron to then buying a business to then integrating and integrating that business to then integrating into another business. So it's like, yeah, it's, it's your kind of head explodes with like, what am I supposed to tell people <laughs> other than this is big things happening? As I said, I'm, I'm asking these questions because 
they're things that I see and trying to understand. And everyone comes at it very, very different ways yeah. for the same problems. And you know, I, I don't know that anyone completely nails it. But on that, and I'm very conscious of the time. So there are two uh, areas. One, you clearly want to talk about the local drinks collective. Um, tell us about that and how that is going to, you know, uh, make solve some of those problems that you've experienced. I, th- I think one of the things that we haven't really talked about, which is relevant to this decision making, is um, is just the the process of a business maturing. So, you know, we're in Sydney, we're in, in Marrickville. Uh, the real estate around us is is growing. Costs are growing at a rate that that are just astonishing. Um, you know, you have inflation and, and market conditions is also adding to the to the struggle of, of any small business. Um, but our staff can't keep up with the growth of what's going on around them, and our business, you know, in its current form, uh, can't keep up with the needs of our staff. So we want to keep people around. We want to give them careers, but you know, some of our guys stand there and you know work the canning machine for you know, eight hours a day, mm. and, and they don't see opportunity. And we can't promise anything. We're doing our damnedest to deliver it. I mean, I've always said to our team, like, I want the highest paid brewing staff in the country. I want, I want ridiculously well-paid brewers. But that has to balance with what they put in and what that's valued in the marketplace. And unfortunately, given the sheer you know, number of breweries and, and the way the business has gone, um, the margins don't support a person who wants a professional career and you know a decent lifestyle in Sydney, so they we've had a number of people flee to further reaching suburbs, looking for better lifestyles and cheaper costs of living, and then we end up starting over with a new staff and you know re- retraining and retooling and figuring out you know how to how to get them integrated into the culture and moving forward and uh, and we just keep you know hitting roadblocks. So you know one of one of the key things for us with the local drinks collective is is being able to you know, access a pool of talent that, um, you know, that's bigger than, than what our business has and, you know, enabling people to, to have careers. I mean, you know, our partners at, at Wayward have put in um, a, a share scheme. So employees are, are earning and, and, and owning into the company that they work for. We'll be doing that with the local drinks collective as well. So all of our staff will have access to, to ownership. Uh, you know, we've, you know, through some of the synergies we've already realized, we've been able to give, uh, you know, some people new opportunities in different parts of the business and, and you know, career potential. Um, but we also struggle with, with the staff shortages and, and the expectations of staff that every business is struggling with. I mean, people have high expectations. They are ambitious. They want more. And sometimes what their job allows, maybe not what they personally can contribute, but what their job allows and what the market allows isn't what they want. So, you know, the, the, the most motivated, smartest, best, you know, functioning salesman or brewer or, or marketing or, or, or beer server, you know, if, if, if the, mar- if the margin on a, on pouring a beer is, is X, we can't pay the person two X. We just can't. And they might be worth five X, but it doesn't matter because the margin is the margin. That's the challenge uh, again. Same challenge that you know my little business has, um, which is why I find these conversations fascinating. So, but to talk us through the um, what is the, the the local beer collective? Because trying to get my head around it, it sounds like a brewery owned distributor as opposed to a you know the the third party distributor model. 
that that's exactly right. So we have come together uh, with our partners at Wayward to build a distribution company. We've moved our common functions that each of our breweries were were operating into that new business so that and what are those common functions because is, is it brewing for example is it it's it's not brewing it's it's the you know it's it's the beer delivery it's the beer sales if you if you're a pub owner or a bottle shop owner you are getting bombarded by 600 reps now you have one rep covering two brands and or and ideally four or five so that's one phone call for the opportunity to buy five different you know, brands of beer as opposed to getting hit up by five reps who suck up, you know, 30 minutes or 10 minutes each. Yeah. So, and we employ the one rep collectively instead of two reps collectively and eventually, you know, four reps collectively. So, yeah. So we, we hope we're delivering some efficiency to the market, which they will then in turn reward us for by, you know, by participating in what we're offering. I guess in terms of um, in, in terms of that, I get it when there are two brands, and you know, you and Wayward have very little overlap in your core range, or you know, for whatever better word, core range. Go back to hear the discussion on core range. Um, but you know, when Pete announced it, you know, it sounded like the, the the hope or the intention was to have three, four, five breweries form part of that, and you know, potentially in 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 other states and. That's where, as an observer, I I see the challenge coming on because one of the gripes I hear often from breweries that want to see growth and not just distribution is, you know, a distributor um, takes the lowest hanging fruit. And if they've got three pale ales, the one that sells is the one that they push because why try and talk a customer out of the one that they want by trying to sell them the other two? And that's where you get... You know, you don't get brands built and you don't get market growth. You just get sales um, that you end up still doing the work. And I'm not sure what it is about the the model that you've proposed that gets around some of those problems. With that, uh, there's a portfolio management, portfolio strategy is essential. And that's what we've kind of, from day one in these conversations, we've said that's really, that's key to... Um, to making this successful. Um, you know, if we get a Queenslander in a Victoria brewery, um, uh, let's just say, uh, they've got their pale ale, let's just use pale ale, pale ale as an example. Their pale ale will be the lead, um, in those States. Um, you know, here, you know, waywards volumes, the lead on their pale ale and like, but we, but our portfolios actually kind of fit together, um, quite nicely. So we, we're not really overlapping. Um, but you know, we, you have to make sure that um, the you have uh, national priorities um, for like the national brands um, that we're gonna. You want to make sure you see in every single store versus um, state-based priorities um, and drive periods and marketing focuses. Um, and I think these are the things that um, kind of going into this. Uh, you know, I, I uh, I've dealt with this in, in my in my past job um, and I've seen it work um, obviously with brands all under one ownership but um, but still you, you still have um, you know people who are passionate about those state-based brands that they want to see them they want to see them grow and all that kind of stuff so I think it's going to be an interesting challenge for us but um, you know if, if everybody is in is in it together um, which is the the idea with this, 
is that you um, you sit there and say like, okay, Victoria brand, you know, you, you're the pale ale. We're going to help you drive that pale ale in Victoria. And yeah, you might have some distribution in New South Wales and Queensland, but the real drive, because we don't want to tell someone you can't have that beer, but the real drive is going to be for, you know, the local pale ale and, and that sort of thing. So th those are things that everyone kind of has to come in and, and understand. Um, and, it's, and out of that, you may end up getting a brand that does emerge as a national brand, and that's okay. When that happens, you 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 adjust and you kind of and you deal with that with that as it comes. But we're all if 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 that brand's winning in this scenario, we're all winning. And I, and I think that's that's the key point to your analogy, Matt, is where you have a distributor who's representing separate entities that are you know completely have, have no. Uh, common economics shared. Yes, you get a, a you know fighting match over who gets the most you know focus by the distributor. In this case, we both give up something of ourselves to gain something of the other brands. And if batch beers don't grow at all, uh, batch shareholders still will grow if wayward beers grow. Yeah. Well, that that's the hope. And I guess when you put it that way, you know, if if, if if you have that resolution to the distributor model um, and if one brewery gets a national brand, everyone benefits, that, that's where my other analogy and whether it's a straw man or, or not, I don't know. But I, I think I've um, said to you both off mic, the, you know, the, the, the four young people that come together in a rock band going, we're about creating music. You know, we're, we're, we're not in, the, in this for the business, we're in it for the music. And then suddenly the uh, lead guitarist writes Hotel California. And uh, after 18 months of royalty checks going to the drummer, um, he starts thinking, well, geez, you know, I could pay anybody uh, to, to, to be the drummer. Why am I paying 25%? You know, he didn't write the song. And that's just one of those you know, challenges that success, sometimes success is the biggest challenge that people can face. So there, there's a couple things to that. One is, you know, I love the analogy. Um, it's, it's, it's bang on. Uh, you know, the difference here is that we have, we didn't come together in our garage as a bunch of, you know, immature people with, with no experience. We're coming together with a pool of, of resources and a pool of experiences with, you know, a deliberate intention. And while we do talk about beer culture and, you know, giving people, you know, a five minute vacation in every can, uh, money is at the heart of what we're doing. And, and I love the beer industry for that reason. You have your creative outlet, but you have your economic foundation. And we're all coming to this as professionals. And, and hopefully uh, we can behave better than a bunch of rock stars. <laughs> but but we, we all know that when we come in, we're giving something up to achieve some diversity. It, you know, it's like it's like the, the superannuation industry. You're pooling resources, you're diversifying, you lower your downside but at the same time, you have opportunity to, to grow. Yeah, I mean, I so. think, uh, yeah, exactly. Like we, we came in with, um, you know, fresh off the bat of acquiring some venues. Um, there's a slightly, you know, we diversified our business model, which was um, different to Wayward, who's driving more, like, and we had, and I always put my hand up and say, we, I, I feel like I've personally failed in, at wholesale, um, but where they have really succeeded in wholesale, so we can sit there and say, all right, well, let's put this together. We can offer more retail sales um, and venues. You guys offer um, significant growth uh, for the whole business and, and wholesale, and we're all achieving. Um, you know, ideally, you know, the next brewery is able to help um, 
you know, bring something um, that adds value to this, to what we've created now in this, in this first iteration of Local Drinks Collective that will add value in some way, shape or form as well. There's many, many ways that that could happen, right? Ideally, everyone's kind of coming to the table bringing, bringing something that they're, that can, they can, they can offer that's a little bit different. And as we go forward, who knows? I, I don't know how that's going to play out because once you get the third, fourth, fifth brewery, I mean, how much different can we be? Um, or what different aspects can they bring? But who knows? We'll, we'll, we're going on that journey now. So we'll figure that one out. Just very conscious of time, and it's been a great chat, and uh, it's certainly one that I would uh, love to have continued over a number of beers. But I will ask the, uh, the 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 classic, you know, nearly ten years into Batch's journey, if you could go back and restart the the whole journey, knowing what you know now, and having had the uh, the the wealth of experiences and learnings you've had, how different would Batch look today if, if you had that privilege? What would you have done differently and uh, how would Batch look now? I don't know how much we could do differently because, you know, we use the resources that we had and our own personal tolerances uh, for for dilution. So when we started, as I mentioned, I think we, we worked off about a half a million dollar budget. Uh, we got a hundred grand from, from some key investors early on and then Andrew and I each contributed 200. From then, we didn't take on another dollar until crowdfunding. We've seen peers around us consistently sell pieces and pieces and pieces until what they're left with is is almost nothing or, or very little, and they're basically just hanging on it as an employee. Uh, you know, we've we've managed to hold on to a, a fair chunk of what we started with, and and I don't know that I would do that any differently. I mean, the easy thing, not the easy thing, because it's very hard to raise money, but the the path to great volume is sell your business, sell a chunk of your business, get a big influx of capital and build yourself a big ass brewery. And once you are big enough, you can kind of swing your weight around and, and get shelf space by sheer, uh, you know, sheer momentum. Um, that's not what we set out to do. We would, we would be running a very different business. It would not have given us the personal satisfaction at the last nine years, well, minus the last three. So maybe six or seven years. Uh, has has granted us and and I wouldn't change that experience even though we have landed in a spot where you know the the you know beers aren't flying off the shelves and revenue is stable and not growing which is what we've promised people uh, I don't know that I would I would trade that experience yeah I don't think I would either I've I've learned a lot I mean you can always sit there and be like oh yeah we would have you know put a kitchen in or done or whatever but that's you know I think um, the the past nine years has been a yeah, to echo, it's been an awesome journey. And I think, um, you know, we've learned a lot. You've learned a lot of, about how to run a business, a lot of hardship. There's been success. There's been hardship. There's been failure. There's been um, everything. Personally, it's made me stronger and hopefully smarter and able to deal with new and different things in ways that I wouldn't have been able to deal with if I hadn't done this. So I kind of, you have to kind of go on that journey in order to get there. <laughs> so <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll ask a similar question in a different way. Um, what would your advice be to somebody that still thinks, yeah, how awesome would it be to open a brewery? You know, what advice would you give them apart from don't set up in Sydney's inner West? <laughs> yeah. Good luck finding real estate you can afford unless you've yeah. got, you know, $10 million behind you which is what our, you know, our peers have done around us. And, you know, some of them are eating our lunch currently, but, you know, I think the, 
you know, the authenticity will, will uh, be the ultimate, you know, staying power. Um, and that's what I would, I would tell people is stay authentic, uh, stay connected to your, to your consumer base. I mean, the more disconnected I've become, the less I can predict where things should be going and what, what people want. If When I was pouring beers, it was very easy for me to make beers because I had immediate feedback, you know, being 10,000 miles away and, um, and getting all my feedback secondhand with you know, almost no ability to come and visit because of lockdowns and, and border closures has really taken a dent in my own you know, personal ability to impact the business. Um, but yeah, I mean, stay authentic. Don't be overly ambitious because that space is crowded. If you are a unicorn and you believe to be a unicorn, and I guess a lot of us do, and that's why we get into this, like go, go for your life. But um, I, I kind of see it as a stratified market where if you've achieved a certain amount of shelf space and, and you have some stability and some financial backing, you're probably riding this fairly well. And if you're small enough that you aren't reliant on wholesale distribution, then you're probably riding this very well. But you're also you know, living in your brewery because you have to work 14 hours a day. Uh, which I fucking loved personally, but um, doesn't work as well when you've got a family and you need to be home for, for bedtime and bath time. Yeah. Uh, my, my joking advice would be don't get married, don't have kids and, and try not to drink too much. But the reality <laughs> is, you know, your, your life is going to get in the way of your business plans and, you know, you have to be able to, to, to manage both. I would say don't do it. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> just don't do it. Um, go and drink at someone else's uh, brew pub and enjoy enjoy it. Part, I'm, I'm half joking when I say that. I think part of it part of it is um, I love doing what I'm doing and for all the reasons I've just saying and learning and I've been in the beer industry for a little while um, and I probably will be for a little while longer. Um, but you know sometimes for me, I think you know I just want to be able to go into a brew pub or to a bar and not think about work. Um, and just enjoy it for what I used to enjoy it for. Um, so it, it, part of that does get ruined for you a little bit when you do this. So that I would definitely be saying like, uh, if you, if you really want to set up a brewery or a brew pub or something like that, um, do it, but no, to all of Christmas points, you're going to be working hard and make sure you know what your ex you set your expectations and that, and that's from, do you want this thing? Do you want to earn enough to have a modest living? Do you want to um, try and build this thing up to be bigger than Ben-Hur? You know, all that kind of stuff. Just know what you're going into it for and set your expectations around that. Um, and know that, you know, it, it, it could fail. And I hope it doesn't, but it could. you, you have to be prepared for failure um, in this. And that's that's what I'd be saying to someone. And, and that's just a realist point of view. You know, I'm I'm an eternal optimist, so I, I'd like to think that everyone kind of like that op like that opens up a brew pub or something like that. Okay, this is great, man. You're doing what you want to do, but the real the real aspect of it is to Chris's point is like if you if you if you haven't gone into it and you don't know exactly what you're getting yourself into, you're going to be working the 14 hour days, and at some point that might not be what you want to do. So you just got to make sure you know what you're getting yourself into and what your expectations are. You're going to be working 14 hour days and may not be enjoying your beer as much. Which is yeah. why you got into it in the first place. Yeah, so that's it's definitely an industry of passion, and when passion overwhelms economic, you know, practicality, you, the industry just gets distorted, and everybody has to work as hard as the person who's willing to work fourteen hours. I wouldn't discourage anyone from doing it, but I would, I'd probably, I'd just be telling them like, this is, you just got to know what you're going to get, what you're getting into it for, and it, you can't just 
if you know if all of a sudden one day you say oh this is too hard for me i can't do this anymore it's not that easy you can't just uh, unless you set it up to be able to do that but you can't just walk away from it um you know you've got you have rent you've got employees you've got um you know consumers that are relying on you to for all this stuff so you, you have to you, you know you have to you have to be ready for that yeah liquidation is an option but it's it's going to leave you hurting that's for sure yeah those answers uh, justify, you know, the, the, the whole podcast. They're almost a podcast in themselves. So I'll just ask you, would you both do it again? Yes. Um, I, I've often thought that after a batch, maybe I'd start like a brew pub or something like that. So I think that's still <laughs> um, like, you know, by the, by the seaside somewhere, like in a, in a not too expensive suburb. I, I always thought that would be awesome. So yeah, I probably, I'm a glutton for punishment. So I probably would, yeah. All right, Andrew Finran and Chris Edward, thank you so much for this, uh, yeah, a, a, a really valuable conversation um, about Batch, uh, another conversation about Batch's journey and also just to you know, look at the, the, the realities of being in the brewing industry. One, one final closing comment is consumers, to the extent you guys are out there listening, uh, speak up, tell your brewers what you want and, and know that every dollar you spend is a vote for who you want to be surviving, you know, the next couple of years. So you have a lot of power. Great. Thank you both. Cool. See ya. And that was Andrew Finneran and Chris Sidwa. And I thank them again for being willing to engage in that conversation. I'm really looking forward to seeing how the local drinks collective works for them and whether it solves the issues for them that many small breweries are currently facing. I'm really keen to hear your thoughts on this episode. Even if it's one of those emails that begins, as many do, don't quote me on this. I'd really love to hear your thoughts and what you're seeing out there in the industry. If you like what we do in, at Radio Brews News, having the conversations that you won't hear anywhere else in the beer media, you can help us to spread the word and you can also help us out. You can help us by sponsoring the show if you're a business, even by taking an ad that appears in these podcasts. You can invest a little bit of your time in us by reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting service, or you can join us on the Facebook group or at producer at brewsnews.com.au to share your thoughts. Don't forget, we'll be back this Friday with Brews News Week, diving deeply into the other news of this week.